And welcome to the Mason Jar Podcast. I'm Renee Mathis, and I'm your host for this series of podcasts on mentoring moms. Whether you are a young mom in need of guidance or an older mom with wisdom to share, I hope you'll join me on this encouraging journey. Well, today I'm joined by someone who probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give it a try. Andrew Kern, the founder and head of the Searcy Institute, is joining us to talk about mentorship. And he graciously agreed to be my guest, which is kind of turning the tables here because the student is going to interview her teacher. I graduated from the Searcy Apprenticeship in 2011, and Andrew was our head mentor during those three years. So welcome, Andrew Kern. Well, I'm trying to recover from the idea that it was eight years ago, but thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> a, lot of, wow. a lot of water under that bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what would you like to tell us about yourself? Well, I'd like to tell you that I'm a grandfather. I have seven grandchildren, and one of them was born two weeks ago named Anastasia Ray. And I have five children, so I'm hoping to have at least 25 grandchildren in the not-too-distant future. And then if each of them have five, that's 125 kids. And then if each of them have five, that's 625. And each of them have five, and only five generations will have over 3,000 kids. Of course, in six generations, we'll have 15,000. And in seven generations, there'll be 75,000 plus of us. And then the world will regret letting us live. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we all need to know math. <laughs> I am very impressed. <laughs> Yeah, because I could multiply by five. <laughs> that quickly. Isn't being a grandparent wonderful? It's incredible. The, the, the thing is, you know, the joke of it is I can just, every grandparent has been saying this for generations, I can just stir up the kids and then send them home back to the parents. And of course, that's when mothers don't appreciate. But the uh, the reality is that there's something indescribable that takes place. And I remember when my first grandson was born, Coulter, he's eight now. I remember when he was born being more consciously altered within myself by his birth than I was by the birth of my own firstborn. And it's really hard to get your head around that. Maybe maybe that's more of a man thing or maybe it's just a me thing. But when my firstborn, David, was born, I knew my world had changed. I was only 22, so that might be part of my retardedness. But um I knew my world had changed, but it didn't, but I knew it had changed, right? When Coulter mm -hmm. was born, I didn't expect it. And, and something, something really different happened inside me. And being a parent opens up a perspective on, I mean, a grandparent opens up a perspective on reality that I didn't have before. <laughs> I agree. I, I think there's something about seeing your child as a parent that that does profoundly change you and gives you a sense of the just the generations and the continuity and in a way that yeah you're right having your own child it stirs something in you it changes you but maybe it's because we just have that vantage point of years on us that we didn't have and and I was telling someone the other day it's so much fun to love these grandchildren because we're not so exhausted all the time <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of. I'm exhausted within a minute and a half, whereas in the, when, I, when I was a younger dad, I had a little more energy about me. But nonetheless, you're not, you're not in a perpetual state of exhaustion. And again, I think this is especially true for moms who, you know, once your baby is born, you kind of lose yourself for, 
however many years it takes to to raise them and and it's such a perpetually exhausting physically mentally emotionally morally it's just such an exhausting thing to to raise children and yeah with with grandchildren there is a sense of objectivity in the whole thing that's fascinating it's it's easier to be objective about my grandchildren than it ever was about my own children be objective about your grandchildren i, I don't like being objective they're mine are all perfect i don't know about yours <laughs> well I don't mean I don't mean in that sense. I mean I am chuckling with you just to be clear, but but I but I don't mean really in that sense. I mean in specific situations. It's easier for me as a grandparent to make an objective evaluation of what ought to be done in a given situation uh-huh. than it, than it was about my own children. Something about your your own children, my own children. It was very hard for me to probably just my egotism, but but I think even beyond that, I think it's very difficult to constantly be making objective calibrated decisions about your own children. That is true. Well, now that we're talking about grandchildren, I'm going to make a little segue into our topic today because this is interesting. You started the Cersei apprenticeship and I'd like to hear more about why and what your, your goals were, but you've seen people that you've mentored kind of have grandchildren, right? We, we've uh-huh. come through the program and now we're mentoring other people. And, and the ones we mentor are mentoring others. So was that your vision for the program in the beginning? That's a really good question. And I, I'm a split personality and I have a, I have a side of me that is incredibly vainglorious and ambitious that would let, wants to save the world and change the world and do all that meaningless stuff that wants to be really important. And then I have this other side that just laughs at that guy. And so I think when I was starting the apprenticeship, as I recall, it was mainly in response to a felt need. I was doing consulting with schools. I was interact. I was speaking at conferences. I was interacting with, with homeschool moms. And I was doing teacher training. with. I had been in, involved in schools and was doing teacher training. So I had these ideas that, that needed to be expressed, I suppose you could say, sort of like a poet needs to write a poem or St. Paul says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. In a similar sense, I had these ideas and I felt like I had to find some outlet for them. And so I had to, in a way, I had to start an apprenticeship in order to find that outlet. But in terms of the the people that I was working with, I think I had a dual desire. One was I wanted to disciple people and what they were going to do with it that's the wonder of discipleship, right? You, 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 get to, you get to leave it up to them what they're going to do with it. Um, but I needed, to, I needed to pour this. I, needed, I had been freely given many things and needed to give them out. And then the second thing is I, I think I hoped, and I think I probably even talked about this with some people, I hoped that it would grow and that eventually there would be more disciple, more apprenticeship groups. And, you know, if you, if you do that math, like we've been doing with my family before, if you have, if you have 10 or 12 people, well, let's say you have four people graduate every year, then after three years, four people graduate. And after five, after, after six years, eight people would graduate because you've got two groups now. Let's say only one of them starts another group and it, it can grow exponentially or even geometrically. So it, it could go from 
having a dozen people being discipled in very fast order to having 50, 60, 70 people discipled a year. And, and that then, if the administrative structure is in place and, and, uh, or if people just go out and decide to do it, you could have hundreds and thousands of people getting an actual, I mean, to use the word about this call, getting an actual mentorship as opposed to, and here, this is something I'm going to say here that's going to come across as negative, and I apologize for that. I mean this only by way of comparison, uh, not by way of competition or put down. But modern um, ways of training teachers, in my observation, are very, very limited, relatively impersonal, certainly not oriented toward discipleship. And, and too much of that then becomes part even of the Christian and homeschooling mentality about teaching. And I wanted to see something deeper, more personal, <clears throat> more like a discipleship. And my my fantasy, I suppose, is that a lot of people can eventually over time get a deep, deep instruction instead of, well, Renee, you've been to our conference, so you know what I'm talking about. We, we only have 250 people at our conference. We could, I suppose, we could have 1,000 or 2,000 people at our conference if we wanted to really throw it open and invite everybody and push hard on the marketing side. And, but what a different experience it would be. I, I believe in nurturing souls. And so the structure of our conference is oriented toward more relationships, more dialogue, that kind of thing, more, more human interaction. In a parallel way, that's what we're trying to do with the apprenticeship is, is to take it much, much deeper. Because really, I mean, realistically, three days with 250 people, that's good. But it's not world altering, except that the Holy Spirit can do things that you can't demand of him. <laughs> um, but in a but in the, in that twelve person apprenticeship, it, I guess I'm beating this horse to death. My point is simple: that in that twelve person apprenticeship, over the long term, you can have a very deep training, spiritual formation, the whole thing that can spread deeply over a long period of time to many people if the Lord chooses to do that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my summary statement. Sorry for all the wandering. No, I think it's great. And I, I think I would agree that it, what you wanted to happen is happening. I mean, it's growing. We have more and more head mentorship groups. Um, and I, I love the word disciple. That's how I describe what I do. When people, I'm glad. You know, what do you do with these these teachers? And they said it's not just teacher training; it's a relationship, and it's it's much deeper than um, than what most people think of. And so, when you think of the word mentor, um, huh. tell us a little bit about where where that sits in your head. I mean, are you thinking the classical? And if you would like to go ahead and explain for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the idea that mentor actually comes from Greek mythology. Um, <laughs> It comes from Homer, where everything comes from. Everything comes from Homer, right? <laughs> yeah, was it was it was it a um, Telemachus had a had a guy named Mentor who was mentoring him, an older man who was one of the people in on the island of Ithaca, as I recall. I should go look at the Odyssey and confirm this, but I think he was on the island of Ithaca and one of one of the only people there who actually cared about Telemachus and, and wanted him to, to grow. 
so yeah, that's it's definitely a an a, an ancient conception. Now my understanding, and please don't quote me on this. Check me out on this. My understanding is that the word mentor is related to the Greek word for mind. You can even hear it in English, and it transitions through the through the Latin. Mens is Latin for mind, and then mentis becomes of the mind. Um, and I think that there's a Greek word that is the cognate of that because it's all Indo-European that even before the Latin, you've got a Greek word that means mind um, that sounds similar to that. It's not noose and I'm not sure what the word is exactly, but there is, I think, one there. And so the idea here is that a mentor is almost the second mind, um, a mind that's that's maybe in a certain sense above your own mind, a, a more mature mind, a more advanced mind, a more understanding mind. But then I have to add this, that when we today think of mind, we think of a very small thing. In the ancient world, when they thought of mind, it included something much vaster. It was more like our word for soul and might even have included to a certain degree our word for spirit. So when we have this vast separation between mind, rational thought, and emotions, that was a completely alien idea, it seems to me, to the ancients. So the, so the mentor is the person who is, who is, as we like to say nowadays, I don't think the Greek could have thought this thought because it would be so inc inconceivable that you'd have an alternative. But when they were teaching, they taught the whole child, the whole person automatically, right? And that, that, that's what a mentor does. It's person to person. And what you're trying to do is cultivate the humanity of the other person and to prepare that person to live in the real world. Uh, the idea of this hyper-specialization that drives us in our schools today would be, um, it would be considered a very inferior form of interacting with another human. Um, so that, that, that's my thought. Now, I, I want to throw this out too, that a, a few years ago at our conference, Vegan, Gare Vegan Garoyan gave a talk and I think it was just called mentor mm -hmm. and he, and he, uh, he described the traditional process of mentoring. And I think he used fairy tales to explain it. That's he usually does, but that, that talk, I'm going to guess that's an easy one to get. If it's not, everybody should just bombard David with emails. <laughs> so he makes it easy to get. <laughs> it's on the Cersei website under the free resources. It is there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then we should make a special for for your listeners and charge three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, Vegan Garoyan mentions that the mentor should choose his right. or protege. What about you know in this day and age, if, if somebody wants to be mentored by somebody else, are you against asking that person? Oh no, no, no. I, I'm all in favor of that. In fact, let's face it: we don't have a coherent culture. And so um, I feel like the words catch as catch can almost fit in. We, we, are, we, are a, a, we are a fragmented, broken down spiritual, intellectual culture where everybody's on his own. And therefore, it's exceedingly difficult. We don't recognize authority in our culture of any sort, not even the real thing. And so, so when, when one person has maturity over another person you know just experience and feels like they have something to offer they don't have the the um i'm going to say permission 
almost from our culture to to offer themselves. Um, I think, therefore, it would be a very acceptable, desirable, respectful thing for a person to seek out a mentor. And and I would say this: that if anybody listening is is a, a grandparent, a a mother of children who have grown and left the nest, I think that you ought to feel a humble um, willingness to make available what you learned as long as you realize, like we all have to, that almost everything we did was wrong. Um, the, uh, the danger, of course, is that a person can grow up and, or can, can, can raise children and they move out and, and the kids might turn out okay and then they take the credit for themselves. And that person would make rather a horrible mentor. But if, but if the mentorship is a spiritual mentorship and, and, and has to do with seeking God and, and feeding on his grace, you know, then, then that's, that's what younger people need. But as far as if there's a young mom listening with the one or two or three kids or 12 kids at home and, and feeling that, that, inevitable and unavoidable uh, overwhelmingness and and trappedness even karen and i were talking about this some on the way into the office that that you know both parents but both men and women husbands and wives not long after marriage especially if they have children i think there comes a moment when some when that little child in us and i don't mean the good one i mean the bratty one the vain one rises up and says, this absolutely sucks. I want out. And when that happens, if you're in a broken society like ours and you don't have models and mentors and people to turn to and someone that you can, you can get some healing for your heart, it's a dangerous time. And I would, I would just entreat both moms and dads of, of young children, get yourself somebody of the same sex as you, somebody older, more mature, experienced, that you can empty your heart to and that you can say, look, I, you, you can't really say it to your wife, or, sorry, to your husband in the case of most of your listeners. You can't really say it to your husband, you know what, this really sucks and I want out. This is too hard for me. Because <laughs> probably don't need to explain why. But but you can find, if you feel that, and I think a lot of moms do, if you feel that, you can find another older woman who's been there. And I, I would contend, I've never been a woman or a mom, but I would contend that, that it's probably not an unusual feeling. <laughs> right. I, I, can't, I can't see how it wouldn't be, right? And again, sometimes, okay, can I, can I digress in a way to, I want to, I want to, make a comment about this ridiculous notion of authenticity that permeates our culture. I, what was I watching last night where authenticity, oh yeah, it was Endeavor, the second episode two of season six. There's this cultic psychological group that it's like 1969 and they're getting in touch with themselves and their authentic self. And it, it's just that typical bogus. But the point, the point I'm getting at here is if you start say, thinking that what you feel and desire right this minute is your authentic self, then you have an incredibly demeaning view of what you are. You, you are an eternity. You are, you are an image of God 
broken and with a thousand desires in conflict. The one that is predominant right now is not you. It is a piece of you. It is a, it is a energy within you. It is not you. It doesn't define you. And this notion that somehow our immediate desires define us is so self-destructive. You don't let go of the fact that you are the image of or made to the image of an infinite and eternal God. And therefore, you are always going to be a mystery to yourself. And that's the authentic you is the one you can't really know. So, so when you have these parts of you that are deeply disturbing, don't be shocked. Just accept them. Talk to somebody who, who, who's comfortable with the, with the dilemma of being a self. Right. That makes sense. And that's one thing I hope that the people listening to this podcast series um, will take away. You know, I, I want to talk not only to the young moms that you've mentioned who are mm. wondering, is it ever going to get better? And, it does. But it absolutely does. But also to those of us who are older and, like you said, do have that experience to share. And I want to encourage them as well. People need to hear what you have to say. People absolutely. need to hear that um, I love what you said, a humble willingness to offer yourself. Um, please offer yourself. There are moms out there that need to hear your voice of experience. And I know I was talking to my own daughter, who's a, a busy mom of four children. And she said, sometimes I just need to hear it's going to be okay. Right. It's not always going to be like this. <laughs> right. And, and that, that can mean a lot coming from someone, coming from someone who's been there. And you want, you want to find somebody, what we need, okay, what we need to mentor other people as, in other words, what we need to be to mentor others as Christians, and what we need to mentor them to do is Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, right? And, and what it says there is, as beloved children, imitate God as beloved children. And what's the imitation? As Christ did, who gave himself up for us a living sacrifice, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God, right? And, and this is the thing that's so crucial is what we are, what, if you want to talk about modeling, which is a huge element of mentoring, what we're modeling is sacrificing ourselves to God for others. And I think the distinction there is gigantic and important. We are not, let, let's say, for example, let's say, for example, that a mom is in a situation where she's, she's submitting to her husband out of just sheer willpower. That doesn't work. If, if, you're, if you're, the Bible tells the husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church and for the, for the wife to, love, to submit to the husband as the church does to Christ, but you have to understand the context of that is in giving yourself up as a sacrifice to God. And the slave who's supposed to obey the master is not supposed to do it to please the master, but God. And so none of that passage in Ephesians 5 and 6 makes any sense if you think I'm doing this to the other person. I'm doing this, you know, in my relation to the other person. What we are doing as Christians is making ourselves a living sacrifice to a God who receives it and is pleased by it. And he is the only one who can ever reward us in any way that will come close to satisfying us because he's the one who will say to us, well done, and no other well done will do it. And so if we, if we do it for the, this is what kind of where I'm going is if we do it for the other person, we are going to be dissatisfied. We are going to be disappointed because they'll never ever be able to give up as much as we do. So we're, so we're supposed to 
outdo one another in showing honor. And we're supposed to give ourselves up as a living sacrifice, but never to the other person, only to God. For the other person, but only to God. That is profound. That what you just described there too, when you talk, we talk about modeling and, and mentoring um, as offering a model to the other person um, kind of makes me think. And in terms of where we're going this summer with the national conference, where we're going to be talking about form right? and, and the form that we want to embody as, as mentors and disciples is what Christ did. Um, but the form or the image that what, what we are supposed to imitate. Can I push even a little bit on that and say, yes, what Christ did, but, but really who Christ was. Who he is. Be- yeah, because, because we can't really do a lot of what he did. We don't have, most of us don't have miraculous powers and so on. But we can be like him on the inside, right? We can be oriented to what he was oriented to. We can love what he loved by grace, by the Holy Spirit. But for us, that means the most important thing we have to be um, modeling being in front of our children, in front of our men, our prodigies, in front of those that are mentoring us, in front of everybody, is we have to be repentant people who are constantly recognizing that I'm taking control here. I'm, I'm worried about my own reputation here. I'm worried about how I look here. I'm, I'm more worried about pleasing men than pleasing God here. And so I have to be... I mean, if the word obsessive was appropriate, I'd use it. So, so let's use it by exaggeration. I have to be obsessively repentant because my heart is always like a compass turning away from the North Pole. Like, I'm like a compass with a magnet beside me, right? And, and my needle is, is suppo- it's created to turn north. It's created to point me to God. But it's constantly, constantly drawing me to the east and the south and the west and everywhere and spinning around and around. The only thing I can do then is reorient. Do you know what orient comes from, by the way? Go ahead. This is so interesting. Orient is, is, you could say it's the east, but why is it the east? Because orients is Latin for rising. Oh. Yeah, so we have to orient ourselves to the rising sun, right? That's kind of cool. It is. It, it ruins my, my compass metaphor. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's north, but... But the point is that, that we have to orient ourselves and, and, and because I'm always herky-jerky getting off that, I have to be constantly turning to our Lord and saying, have mercy on me, the sinner, and turning my heart back to him. And, and I think more than anything else, that's what we need to model to, that's what we need to be within ourselves as repentant people. And then once we're holy, then we can you know, do stuff that everybody else should do. But until we're holy the one thing we know we need to do is repent. And so if we can model repentance instead of thinking, because see what happens too often is a mentor takes upon himself the burden of behaving a certain way instead of, instead of being a certain way. And it's hard to be, right? <laughs> you, can, you, you can only be a certain way by being formed into, transformed into it. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But look at where we are again. We're back to the mind. And of course, the word there for mind is noose now, and that is more like the spirit. So it's, it's a re- an inner renewal that we need. How do we get that? Well, I don't know exactly, but certainly repentance is needed. Well, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and Absolutely. God comes in and sanctifies us and, and, like you said, transforms us. 
into what we need to be. Um, I'm curious. That's perfectly said. Thank you. Why do you think Athena, back to Homer, um, Athena disguised herself as Minotaur in order to teach Telemachus what he needed to know? Why, why do Thank you. Think you. Need, why do you think the need for disguise there? <laughs> well, maybe it's because the Greek gods were too radiant and, and you'd melt if you saw them directly although he, she does kind of appear to Odysseus. Maybe he wasn't ready. Maybe he could receive human counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly. Um, but I will say that it's not, it's analogous to how God approaches us. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't come to us in his full glory. He, he I don't want to say disguises, he reveals himself by putting on the body, right? Right. It's astounding. He reveals himself by taking on a human body. That's how we know what God is like, because he put on something other than his own essence, which is, I mean, get your head around that somehow. So maybe that's why. Um, I, I I think what we can often do is put this vast wall between being and appearance, because we read things like the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And then we can get the idea that the outward appearance is always bad. And it isn't. Mm-hmm. The, the outward appearance is, is a, a manifestation of what's inside, um, but not always accurately, not always honestly. What's most essential is what's within us. So I think, I think when Athena takes on the, the mask of mentor, let's say, um, she is putting on an appearance in order to help Telemachus see what he can't look on directly, um, to make to make him to make herself as wisdom more approachable to Telemachus, mm-hmm. uh, to to um, lead Telemachus as far as Telemachus is capable of going at that time. Which, by the way, both as mentor and prodigy, that's probably the most important thing you learn is that is that this takes time. And one has to, one has to be very patient with oneself, and with one's prodigy as as he mentors, as he disciples. You know, there's a reason it's a three year program for adults in our apprenticeship. So, I don't know. Maybe. What do you think? I'll turn this around. I'll interview you. What do you think? Why Why does Athena wear a disguise as mentor? I mean, the obvious thing might be because she's telling us, "Look, you need a mentor." Right. Right. Um, she obviously had a clear purpose in mind. She wanted him to know some things that she thought he needed to know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking maybe she, you know, she wanted to find the best way she could to communicate that in a way that he could receive. Oh, that's good. And, and make it useful. And I think as, as those who mentor others, we, we want to know the person we're mentoring well enough, which goes back to then, that what you talked about earlier, that it needs to be deep, it needs to be personal, it needs to be a transformative relationship. Yeah. Okay, so was Athena being inauthentic? No, I, I think she was using the tools that she had at her disposal hmm. as a goddess. Hmm. She could have disguised herself as an owl or um, you know, taken any form at all, but she chose the one I think that Polemicus would listen to. Yeah. Huh. It's, I don't know. So it's interesting to think about. Also, all the idea that he was missing his father and he was missing that older 
masculine yep. influence in his life. Yep, this is the age of Telemachus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Definitely. Well, who are, who are some of your mentors? Who mentors you? Now? Yeah, or in the past? Um, yeah, well, I think, I think when I was a child, the person that my, my biggest conscious debt to would be John Duckhorn, who was a missionary to Columbia and came back, I think it was 1976, when I was about 12. And uh, he just played a real, and again, he didn't ever take on a formal mentoring role in my life, but he played a, a dominant role by, by virtue of his godliness and his, he was a teacher. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that we think like the people we talk to. And he, he thought well, he talked well. And so he influenced me that way. I think um, my friends, Tim, Eric, Roger, uh, Jeff, guys like that, I could go on and on and then, you know, get in trouble for those I neglect to mention. Tom, these guys in my youth group were, were unbelievable. I had, I had the most perfect youth group in the history of the world. So um, it, it's unbelievable how much, how much I have wasted from what, what I got as a kid. Um, I had a counselor named Mark Soderquist at camp who, um, when I was put in his cabin for the second year in a row, other counselors leaned over and said, we'll pray for you. But he never, he never gave me any indication that I was driving him crazy, although I can't imagine I wasn't because I was a mess in those days, um, more even than now. But he was, he was, um, he just accepted me and embraced me and and was a model to me of of humility and 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 of love of god so i i can easily point to to a lot of people from my childhood who who you know poured their lives into me in in, in limited periods of time i don't think i can think of anybody who apart from john duckhorn who really gave me um many many years well, and my friends, but you know, growing up. That, that's a good reminder that um, oftentimes what we do and can have an effect on somebody and we don't even realize it. That that's the thing about it, Renee. That's the thing is that the Holy Spirit takes so little and makes so much out of it, right? We, if, if, we, if we want to set up if we want to mentor other people so that we can mentor other people, we might as well shut down shop. But if we're trying to be what the Holy Spirit wants us to be, if we're trying to be vessels or channels of grace in other people's lives, we're never going to know what, what, what happened. We're, we're not going to be told that, well, we are in the next life. Some of the people years later might contact us and say, you know what, you did this at this time and that's changed everything for me. And they'll remember, they'll remember a moment that is definitive to them, but that moment will only be a part of a whole work that the Holy Spirit is doing that we're a part of. And I think that's so important is that we, we just have to let ourselves be accessible to the Holy Spirit and then watch him do, let him do. Things we look. <laughs> if there's, is it even worth saying that if there's a thankless task in the world, it's motherhood. 
you know, you, you don't get the feedback from the, 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 the Thanksgiving for decades for all, and you never, ever get back what you put in, but the Holy spirit, he's there, he's working all the time. And if we can let him be the one being and doing through us, if we can be channels, a fountain of grace, as Jesus puts it, I think it's in John seven, where the rivers of life flow out of us. You know, if we can be, if we can be that fountain, man, okay, then, then, then there's not a program, but, and we don't know what our role is in somebody else's life, but it's potentially, it's gigantic. Hmm. Do you um, have any specific resources that come to mind, perhaps, that um, maybe it's just a literary example of, of a good mentoring relationship that's a great model for us? Or um, In a way, that's kind of a funny question, because almost every piece of great literature, especially journey literature, has, is about mentorship. Um, Star Wars, Odyssey, Dante. Mm-hmm. Homer, I said the Homer, Virgil, um, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fourth, parts one and two. You know, all, almost all great literature. I forget. I read somewhere that there's two plots. One is, one is that um, somebody goes on a journey, and the other is somebody comes home. Oh, and, and, and in either case, in either case, you need guides, right? Oh, Pilgrim's Regress. Um, by Lewis, um, uh-huh. um, I even think his discarded image is kind of that. Um, the silver chair is fabulous for that. Um, Narnia, all of the Narnia chronicles are are journeys with with guides, mm-hmm. and and I think that's by design. I also think that there's, you know, what there's this amazing verse in Acts two, where where Peter is is proclaiming the risen Christ to those who crucified him two months earlier. And in it, he quotes David, whose tomb is down the road, basically, from where they're standing. And David says, you will show me the ways of life. And Peter says, you know, David's dead, right? And so when he said, you will show me the ways of life and you will not allow your Holy One to suffer corruption, he wasn't talking about himself ultimately. Now, by practical application, we also can enjoy you know, comfort in those verses. But basically what David is saying is, I hope you're all, your, your listeners will forgive me for putting it this way, but basically what David is saying, it, it, what the Holy Spirit is saying through David, and therefore Jesus actually is saying, is when I am among the dead, a man among the dead, then... It'll be like Aeneas, and you will show me the way out. It'll be like Odysseus, you will show me the way out. It'll be like Orpheus, and the way out, you'll reveal. Only difference is, instead of these pale shadows and glimpses, it'll be an actual man among the dead being shown the way out by the Father. And so even in the Holy Trinity himself, we see, call it a mentorship, we see the Father mentoring the son and then raising him from the dead and you know we have to be very very careful not to diminish the humanity of our lord jesus he was a man and as a man 
he needed to be shown the way out, the way of life. So at every level of being, even in the, even in the Holy Trinity, at every level of being, there is this relationship of father to son, of mentor to prodigy, of, of, of leader to follower. It's, it's woven into the cosmos. It's woven into being itself. And if we try to live apart from that, then we certainly aren't living in light of the, we aren't living in light of the gospel. But if we, if we take it on, then we have the, the form that God has established and that he created in order to breathe into it. Just like he, you know, he, he, he made the human body and then breathed into it the breath of life, without which it would have been just a piece of clay. And in the same sense, he's given us a form without which, without his Holy Spirit, it's nothing, but this is the preferred form to the Holy Spirit, right? This is what he wants to work through. And that's the, that's the mentor-disciple relationship. He can work without it, but he doesn't want to, if I can put it that way. Well, you, you just realize, I realize that you, you mentioned the, the two main plots. If, if the two main plots and everything are going on a journey and then going home, and if you combine that with the fact that literature speaks to our souls because it is an echo of God's greater story. That's right. And I would say that the Bible is the perfect combination of both those plots that absolutely we are all on a journey, but the good news is we do go home mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. that there is a place prepared for us. Um, so I'm going to end there, Andrew. I, I know I'm only one of many who could say this, but um, I want to thank you for encouraging me to be a better teacher and mom. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for your wisdom and your advice and your experience and your challenges and I pray that someone listening today um, will be encouraged as well, whether it's, it's to be encouraged to seek out that mentoring relationship or, or that she will be encouraged to humbly offer herself to yeah. someone else. And I thank you for your example for us. Huh. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm deeply, deeply honored and grateful for those words, Renee. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.